<sighs> okay, hold on. First, I'm going to wipe off my palmy. My, my, I have just these clammy palms because I, I don't know what it is, but anytime I prepare to speak, I have this feeling like I'm going to pass out. And so when, when Carly was singing, I was praying, God, please take this feeling of wanting to pass out away from me. Unfortunately, he didn't. So now I'm up here with very clammy hands. Um, and if I pass out, it's going to be like weekend at Bernie's, just like prop me back up. Um, but the good thing about this, the good thing about this is that it really isn't about me. It really doesn't matter what I say or what I do. I just prepare and God does the work through the Holy Spirit. He empowers the message into your hearts and your minds and calls you to action through it. So I am putting all my faith and trust in God to fill in the gaps where I'm insufficient today. Okay, so I do have to say happy Halloween first. I, I didn't know if that was okay to say in church, like happy Halloween or happy fall harvest, but then I heard Carly say it and I was like, hey, that's fine, I'm gonna say happy Halloween. So really, for ha Halloween for me is the excuse to eat as many of those Reese's pumpkins as I want to and not feel guilt about it. And I know for a fact that there is an entire bag of them back in our nursery that we couldn't use last yesterday with mega awesome costume party because of nut allergies. So I'm heading straight for that once this is over. So this is your permission. Go eat all the Reese's pumpkins that you want to because they're so much better than the Reese's cups for some reason. And then tomorrow you can go back to worrying about counting your macros or doing low carb or all the things that the middle-aged ladies like me do that the young women are still not worried about. Not jealous at all. Okay, so because many of you know me and have sat down in conversation with me, you know that I have a real problem of being long-winded. So now that I've given you my stand-up comedian side, we're gonna jump right into today's lesson. So the part of John 3.16 that I have the opportunity of unpacking for you today comes at the tail end of the scripture. It's the phrase, believes in him. But in order to really begin to grasp a deeper understanding of this phrase, we have to look at it in context of the entire scripture. So that's what we're going to do first. We're gonna read John 3:16 out loud together. And for some of you like Dot, you memorize this when you're a toddler. And maybe for some of you, this is the first time since you've been in this Bible study that you've really ever heard the scripture. But I bet whether you learned it when you were two or when you were 50, you've got it memorized by now. So let's read it together. One, two, three. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Great job, guys. You sound so good. So in this verse, we learned that if whoever, which Angela taught us last week, means anyone. So if anyone believes in him, which is our phrase that we're studying today, the outcome will be that they will have eternal life. Now, when you look at it that way, this seems like a pretty easy trade-off. But as you and I both know, 
While believing in Christ is simple, it's not easy. Sometimes the believing in him part can be much harder than we expect. So in order to parse out this phrase, I want to divide it into two. We're going to first tackle the word believes. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to fifth grade, guys. I was a fifth grade teacher. So you remember that time when you start to have BO and you have to wear um, deodorant and you feel awkward and you kind of like boys, but then you don't like them and they chase you around? That's where you're going back to today, okay? Go back to fifth grade. And imagine I am your teacher and I'm teaching you how to diagram sentences. Here's my question for you. What part of speech is the word believes? It's a? Okay, you guys have to be a little louder than that. I know we had, I know Miss Cheryl made coffee for you this morning. It is a what? It's a verb, right? It is an action word that requires us to do something. Webster's Dictionary defines the word believe as this, to accept something as true, genuine, or real. We all do this, right? There are things all the time in our lives that we accept as true, genuine, or real. But the problem with that is, at times, the things that we believe are true are actually not true. They're false. So this reminds me of when I was a little girl. I had the most awesome grandparents. They were great. And I have to say, I was my grandpa's favorite, okay? Not sure if the cousins are, agree with me on this, but that's what I'm saying. They're not here. They can't disagree. So when I got old enough to call my grandpa a name, I called him Poppy. So that meant that all the other grandchildren had to call him Poppy as well. So Poppy was like this wonderful grandpa, but Poppy also told tall tales to entertain his grandchildren. And in the summer, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. I would just stay with them for a week or so, go home for a couple of days, then go back to my grandparents' house. And my grandma, she was so precious, way more precious than my mom was, because she gave us dessert every dinner, right? If we ate our dinner, we could have dessert. And in the summer, the dessert that she chose to give us most often was watermelon. My grandparents loved watermelon, I don't get this, but they actually put salt on their watermelon and ate it. Does anybody do that? Okay, see? It's weird, but I do get that because I love tahini, and if you put that on your watermelon, it tastes pretty good too. So after dinner, my grandma would cut these giant slices of watermelon, and this was in the 1980s. Moms, you probably don't remember that, but this is the time when watermelon wasn't seedless. It, it only had big seeds in it, okay? So we'd take our big slices of watermelon out on the porch because you can't mess up grandma's house with the dripping watermelon juice. And we would just prepare to eat this delicious watermelon. But before we could even take a bite, my grandpa would get really excited and he would say, now guys, do not, do not, absolutely do not swallow even one watermelon seed because if you do, you know where I'm going with this, right? A watermelon plant will sprout and grow in your stomach. And as a little girl, 
I wholeheartedly believed my grandpa in this. I, I thought this was true. I did what Webster's Dictionary said. I believed that what he said was genuine, real, and true. I remember like actually having some anxiety after I would eat the watermelon, thinking to myself, like, did, did, I, did I swallow one of those seeds? Oh no, do I feel something? Is there something growing in my stomach right now? So, you know. That's silly, right? And some of those harmless tales that we are told or we tell others, they're relatively benign. But there are other lies that we believe are true that can be toxic to us and really detrimental to our lives and to the lives of others. When I was in my late 20s, after I had my daughter, Emma, about nine months after that, I've talked about it a little bit before in Bible study, I realized, actually because my doctor told me, that I was struggling with postpartum depression. And from that point on, that has opened a door of clinical depression in my life that still continues today. But during that time in my late 20s, it was at its peak. It was really bad. I was in the depths of it. And during that time, I began to believe this false narrative or lie that I, I think the enemy planted in my head that my husband, Mike, and my daughter, Emma, we only had one at that time, would be better off without me. And so as this lie started playing on repeat over and over in my head, like when I was a little girl, I began to, to wholeheartedly believe that this was true as well. I would think to myself, being really honest here, if I could just disappear, that would make everything so much better. That lie, it wasn't harmless. It was dangerous. And thankfully, I was able to get help before that led me down a path of destruction. So it's evident that what we believe and what we believe in is important. It has the power to guide our thoughts, our words, and our actions. It also has the power to define the very trajectory of our lives. And that's what brings me to the second part of our phrase today. It's the in him part. As followers of Christ, it's important for us to not only believe but to believe in him, to believe in the person and work of Christ in our lives. So that means that we believe that Jesus is the son of God who dwelled among us as a human. And for in some way, he was fully God and fully man all at the same time. As followers of Christ, we must also believe that the ministry that Jesus did here on earth somehow ushered the kingdom of heaven here. And as followers of Christ, we must also believe that we are reconciled to our creator through the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If some of you grew up in a high church or a litur liturgical church environment, you may have recited the Apostles' Creed on a Sunday morning or sang the doxology. And I think that's really cool because basically those two things are what I just told you. And as you repeat those or recite those over and over again, those beliefs become ingrained in your mind and in your heart. 
but that's not enough. As followers of Christ, we must also believe that he's actually able to do real work in our lives by fulfilling his promises to us. That means that we believe that he can give us that full and abundant life that we want. That he has provided us acceptance by adopting us into his family. That he's given us joy that's not dependent on our circumstances. That he's provided us a peace that passes all understanding. That he's revealed himself to us. That he's reconciled us through Christ. And that he is able to work in all things, even the worst things, for good. And when I look back on my life, I can see where it's been pretty easy for me to believe the things that I told you about in that first list. I grew up in church. I went to Sunday school every week. I heard all the stories. I saw them acted out on felt board, which doesn't, we don't even use that anymore, right? And so, like many of you, I began to believe the things I knew about the person and work of Christ as true. But the second list has been a lot harder for me. Being able to take hold of the promises that God has for us and believe that he's able to do that real work in my life, that has been really, really hard for me. How easily has my fragile faith just shattered when I've faced uncertain times or that sense of hopelessness that you get or tragedy or even depression. Have you been there? Have you ever felt like you had a faith so fragile that it could just break into a million pieces at any moment? Now, if you feel that way, I want you to know you are not alone. There are people in the Bible, characters in the Bible, who came face to face with Jesus and still struggled to believe that he could do what they'd seen him do for others. And we're gonna talk about one of those stories today. We're gonna open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, where we meet a father who is desperate to find healing for his son. He is holding on to the threads of his feeble faith, and he is reaching out to Jesus for hope when all other means of hope have been exhausted. So our story for today is in Mark chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 17. Now, the scriptures will also be on the screens on either side of me if you just want to look up here. Before I begin, though, before we dig into scripture, I'd like to set the scene for you of what is going on when we meet this desperate father. Jesus has his 12 disciples and other people following him around. So Jesus decides that he's going to take three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they're going to go up to a mountaintop. And when they go up to the mountaintop, Jesus is transfigured to reveal his true divine identity to these three lucky disciples. They get this visual representation of who Jesus really is. This is the quintessential mountaintop experience, right? Maybe some of you have had that. 
You have just gone to a retreat or a camp or had a, an experience that provided you this mountaintop high where you just felt like you were so close to God and you really understood him and felt that he understood you. You're just living on cloud nine, right? And so I imagine that's how those three disciples felt. But as Jesus and those three disciples began to descend the mountain, the reality of life hit. Imagine the scene they walked into. You've got the other nine disciples at the base of the mountain waiting around. And I'm thinking, were they just like, why did he take those three? Why aren't we good enough? I don't know. I'm just, that could be heretical. I'm just guessing. So anyway, we've got these nine disciples. They're at the base of the mountain. And while Jesus and the other three had been gone, this giant crowd has overwhelmed them. And they're just pressing in. And we've got people in the crowd who are onlookers just wanting to get a glimpse of Jesus. Then we've got these scribes and Pharisees who are in the crowd that are arguing with the disciples and wanting to test them and test their faith. Then you have people who are there that are sick, and they're demon-possessed, and they are desperate for the healing that they believe Jesus can provide. Scripture says, whenever the crowd saw Jesus coming towards them, everyone was overwhelmed with awe and wonder, and they ran out to greet him. I can almost hear those nine disciples who had been in crisis mode without Jesus present just breathing this sigh of relief. And a current of hope spreads through the crowd as Jesus appears. And from among the masses, a father steps out in an act of absolute desperation. And that's where we begin today in verse 17. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy, but when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into water trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean, if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet, and he stood up. The first time that I recall reading this story and actually understanding it was when I was in my early 20s. 
And it was shortly after my dad had passed away suddenly, and I was participating in a Bible study. It was a Beth Moore Bible study, Breaking Free. I bet some of you have done this Bible study as well. And she used this story as a teaching tool. And as I was reading that scripture, when I came to verse 24, where the father cries out, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I thought to myself, that's me. That is exactly where I am right now. I hadn't stopped believing in the person and work of Christ. I hadn't stopped believing in all those stories that I had heard in Sunday school. But I had stopped believing God. I had stopped believing that his promises were real for me. And I had stopped believing that there was any way that something good could come out of the tragedy that I had just experienced. But God revealed something to me there because I saw myself reflected in the scripture and it gave me so much comfort just knowing that, okay, there are people like me that are in this sacred text, that are in God's word. And I felt confident knowing that even though that's where I was then, that God wouldn't leave me there, that he would continue working on me until I could believe him again. So here's four things that as I have read this story for the last over 20 years since then, that I think God has revealed to me and continued to reveal to me as I've read this story over and over. And these are the things that I wanna share with you today. So if you're note takers, this is gonna be awesome. It's four things and I've even numbered them. Number one, y'all ready? Got your pens ready? Number one, Jesus will supply the faith we lack. Theologian James Edwards says, true faith is always aware how small and inadequate it is. For the father in our story, believing God didn't happen when he fi finally gathered up enough faith to do it, right? It's when he risked everything on what meager faith that he did have by admitting how truly insufficient it actually was. The father put his feeble faith in the sufficiency of Jesus to make up for what he lacked. I love what author and Bible teacher Beth Moore has to say about the struggle to believe Jesus. She says, if we are willing to admit our lack of confidence in him, Christ is more than willing to help us overcome our unbelief. We are weak, ladies. And even at times, as followers of Christ, that weakness extends into our faith. And it can begin to threaten what we believe and what we believe in. The Apostle Paul, he was no stranger to this weakness as well. And I know that that can be hard to believe when we think about the Apostle Paul because he's credited with writing about half of the New Testament books, and he's also considered by some as the first Christian missionary. But the thing about the Apostle Paul was he was human just like you and me, and he had to deal with weakness as well. In, in one of his letters, he actually wrote about this thorn in the flesh that he had, and we don't know exactly what that thorn in the flesh was. And three times he begged God to remove that thorn from him. And three times God replied to him, 
My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So if believing is something that you're struggling with right now, take that to Jesus. Don't be afraid to do that. He will fill in the gaps for you because his power is made perfect in your weakness. And what's so cool about that is when we see his power come through our weakness, his reality, who he is, becomes so evident to us. And then it becomes evident to the people who are around us as well. Okay, you ready for number two? Number two, God wants us to know him and believe him. In Isaiah 43.10, the Lord proclaims this message to his people, the Israelites. But you are my witnesses, O Israel, says the Lord. You are my servant. You have been chosen to know me, believe in me, and understand that I alone am God. Because we have been adopted into God's family through Jesus, this promise is not only true for the Israelites, but it's true for us as well. God wants us to know him. And when we take the time to do that, our faith is strengthened so then we can believe in him also. A relationship with our creator that causes us to believe in him is established as we discover him and we meet him in his word. As we live out our faith in community, as we participate in the sacraments, and as we simply talk to God through prayer. Let's just jump back into Mark chapter 9 and take a peek at what happens as the disciples and Jesus debrief after the father's son was healed. I'm going to start in verse 28. Afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? Jesus replied, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. Prayer like faith declares that spiritual power alone comes from God. So as we pray, we wait, we listen, and we believe in him. That leads me to my third point today. We must trust in Jesus, not in the outcome. In our father's story today, there was a happy ending. This father received the healing for his son that he wanted. But we know that in our own lives, the stories don't always have a happy ending. We don't always get the thing that we want, and we don't get the thing that we've prayed for. And when that happens, we run the risk of falling into unbelief if our faith is founded on the results we want from Jesus, not in who Jesus is. Inevitably, when we do that, we put our faith in the results, we end up disappointed because Jesus told us that we live in a broken world and in this world as believers, we're going to have many trials and sorrows. And those trials and sorrows, they have the capability to shake or even destroy our faith if we have put our faith in the outcome. But if we choose to put our faith not in the outcome, but in the person and work of Christ, we can have peace knowing that Jesus has overcome the world. In the midst of uncertainty, God is faithful even when we can't see it. 
Let's be reminded in the scripture that God calls us to live by believing, not by seeing. Okay, finally we've made it to my fourth point. We can believe in him because the evidence is there. We find it in lots of places, beginning with God's big story. The scriptures of the Old Testament tell us about creation, the fall of Adam and Eve, Noah and the flood. It details the lives of the the patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These accounts included in God's word are all evidence of his faithfulness. And when we read those, we realize we can put our trust in God because he was faithful to keep his covenant promises to his people even when they missed the mark and fell short over and over again. We can believe in him because the evidence is also woven through the sacred text of the New Testament Gospels and in the Acts of the Apostles who sacrificed absolutely everything, even their lives, to bring the gospel to a waiting world. Their belief in the person and work of Christ was this unrelenting commitment that compelled them to share the gospel. And we can see that God was faithful to multiply those efforts. And then if we trace the path of Christianity from beyond the New Testament into church history, we can see the evidence there as well. Since I've been in seminary, I have become a... um, Church history nerd, okay? So I would like to, to share with you an example of a believer who I, I, I think illustrates this perfectly. Her name is Perpetua, and Perpetua was, a, Perpetua was a martyr in the first century. Unfortunately, her story was largely lost due to the patriarchal influence of the church over time. But we're gonna bring Perpetua back today, and I would love for you to continue to share her story with others as well. So Perpetua Perpetua was a young woman. She was about 21 years old, and she was a believer in a Christian community living in the great city of Carthage. And Carthage was located on the northern coast of Africa. So during that time, Carthage was under Roman rule. And the Roman emperor, his name was Severus, not Severus Snape from Harry Potter, but his name was Severus. He was at odds with the Christian community. And the reason why was because he felt that everyone who was under Roman rule should worship the emperor, should worship him instead of their God. So Perpetua and a handful of other believers were arrested and imprisoned because they had converted to Christianity, and that was illegal at that time. So Perpetua was sitting in prison, separated from her infant child who she was still nursing at the time. Can you even imagine what that must have felt like? And over and over again, her father visited her in prison, just begging her to renounce her faith, because if she would only do that, that would spare her life. But Perpetua believed so firmly in the person and work of Christ, she refused to be called anything but a Christian. So eventually, she and her friends were condemned to death in the arena with an audience watching. And even when she had to stand in the middle of that arena and face attack by wild beasts and the gladiators, her faith did not falter because she believed that her eternal existence was secure through Christ. 
These are the shoulders we stand on. The collective witness of our church mothers and fathers inspire us to remain steadfast in our belief. And finally, there is compelling evidence in our own lives as well. God shows up for us. And if we take the time to look back, we can see the presence of Jesus in our lives all over the moments of our lives. There's this story in the Old Testament in which the prophet Samuel leads the Israelite army in a victory against the Philistines. And after the battle has been won, Samuel takes a stone from the ground and then he places it back in the ground. And he calls it Ebenezer. And Ebenezer in Hebrew means stone of hope. And he proclaims when he puts that stone in the ground, up to this point, the Lord has helped us. So today, I want you to take a mental trip back in time and discover your Ebenezers. When has God been faithful to you personally? Place an imaginary stone in those places on your timeline to help you remember. So when you're faced with the season of darkness, and I know that you will be, you're able to walk by faith and not by sight. Believing in him. That way you too can experience the freedom, peace, joy, and love that only comes by trusting in Christ. So I'm going to pray really quickly, and I have asked Carly to come up and lead us in one more song in worship. And while she sings this beautiful song, I would like for you to take that trip back in your mind and place a stone where you've seen God show up and know that he is faithful and that you can believe in him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for these amazing women who I've gotten to share your word with. God, I just ask through my feeble and insufficient efforts that you would, you would multiply and that you would empower this message to the hearts and the minds of these women. And God, we are all on a journey and the strength of our faith and what we believe and what we believe about God, it, it waxes and wanes. So God, I just ask that wherever these women are in their lives, that you would meet them there and that you would fill in the gaps and that they would believe that you are truly sufficient. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen.